So our next journey along the Darwin Festival takes us to Bear Steps Gallery, where Bibbs Cameron is given yet another great lecture. I remember a couple of years ago, I got to sit in the, in the, in the darkness on the stairs and, and watch her do a great talk about Darwin's family. I thought it was really, really cool how, you know, on this one instance, Charles Darwin wasn't a part of it and she spoke just about his family. Um, but no, this event was was a, was completely different to that one. It was um, um, Charles Darwin and the HMS Beagle, A Journey of a Lifetime by Bibbs Cameron. Now, okay, I need to explain of all the events that I was going to be covering uh, for this festival, I thought this one would be the easiest one. Me and Bibbs know each other. She knows how I operate. And, I, you know, she pretty much give me the run of the place, let me put mics wherever I wanted to do. I thought it'd be absolutely fine. So what I did was, um, because there was uh, an amp in the corner and um, I didn't want to risk any bad audio, I thought I'll just put a camera up and then I'll rip the audio from the camera or from the the footage, should I say, and edit that audio because that's worked for me before. No problems, you know. I thought that would be absolutely fine. Half an hour into it, my my camera battery dies. Uh, <laughs> I thought it would last. It was a full battery, literally. I put it in just before I came out. Um, so I had to stop the camera, obviously. I've got half an hour footage of that. And I had to whip out my phone. And I've got a Zoom. I love Zoom, by the way. Um, if anybody's ever going to go into podcasting, uh, Zoom equipment is the best. And I've got a handy Zoom recorder on my phone and I literally put it on the table and recorded the rest on my phone and it was an amazing bit where where Bibbs was going on to talk about uh the the turtles and uh, on, on the Galapagos Islands and that's like that's Darwin isn't it so that bit is missing and it's about half an hour in and I, I really feel bad about it but there's not a lot I can, there's nothing I can do um I, I did speak to Bibbs about it afterwards and um I said if you if she's really not happy with it and she wanted to re-record that the whole lecture so it sounds really great. Uh, then we can do that, you know. So I'm very sorry, Bibbs. Uh, technical issue, um, but the rest of it sounds great. Considering the um, the last bits recorded on a phone, I think we got away with it there a little bit. So I hope you enjoy what we did get. Thank you very much, Bibbs, um, for, for being so, always so accommodating. And Bill as well. I love you to bits. Um, there's lots of stuff going on at Bear Steps. If you've, if you, I know that the, that bit of the road is closed um, because there's damage done to the vehicle, uh, by a vehicle, should I say, to the building. Uh, but you can still walk around and take a uh, take a visit if it's open and there's a and, and any exhibits going on at Bear Steps. Pop your head in. It's a really nice building. Anyway, here is Bibbs' <laughs> lecture. I hope you enjoy it. And I will catch you on the other end. I might just pop a little voice note in when um, when the audio breaks because my camera died. So I'll see you in a bit. Take it away, Bibs. And uh, Charles Darwin and the Beagle. Charles was 22 years old when he was given this opportunity. And he just graduated college. So he was a young inexperienced, enthusiastic amateur. Growing up in Shrewsbury, he was always asking questions. He was always interested in looking at plants and he collected 
plants for his garden. He collected everything. He collected stones, he collected shells, he collected coins, he collected stamps. Anything that could be collected, he collected. And he asked questions about them, always asking questions. But when he went to school in Shrewsbury, it wasn't the type of learning that was observational. It was more learning by rote. So he didn't do too well at school. He didn't like being told what to learn. He rather liked to discover. He's had one or two mentors in his life, and the, the first mentor in his life was Dr. Erasmus Darwin, who was his grandfather. Now, he died before Charles was born, seven years before, but he wrote books. He wrote books about botany, and this was the first book that Charles had read of his called Zoonomia. Zoonomia was written in a poetic type of prose, but um, it explained about plants and pollination and this sort of thing, and also it touched on evolution. So this impressed Charles very much and planted the seed in his mind. His other mentor, of course, was Professor Henslow, who uh, he met at Cambridge University on the recommendation of his brother Erasmus, who, who said he's a man who knows everything about science. And uh, so he introduced himself to Henslow and they became friends. First of all, the way Henslow taught was observational, which really suited uh, Charles. They he took them out on field trips and he said, you go and observe, you come back with your conclusions and then we'll discuss it. And that's the way he loved to learn because he'd been learning that way all his life. Um, he first of all uh, started going to Henslow's house and then he would walk with Henslow every day and he became known as the man who worked, walks with Henslow. The Dons called him that. He then started to go to Henslow's soirees where he got to meet a lot of the professors who were interested in the natural sciences and so it was there the groundwork was made for all the specimens and notes that came back because they were very helpful to him in Cambridge. Uh, Charles graduated, he did get a BA, he was 10th in a class of 178, so he wasn't that dull. Um, he was quite bright with things that he wanted to learn. Um, and then Henslow suggested that he should go off on this geological survey to Wales with Sedgwick, who was brilliant at uh, geology and was asked by the government to do this survey, and he jumped at the chance. But also, at that time, he'd been planning a trip. He read Humboldt travels, and he'd been planning this trip to go to Tenerife. Uh, he was really looking forward to going to Tenerife and got really excited about seeing exotic plants and a volcano. Um, so this was his dream. But he gets a letter when he gets back from his trip with Sedgwick 
And it's from Henslow. And Henslow says, well, I've got some bad news for you. Sorry, chap. He said, um, Marmaduke Ramsey, who you were going to Tenerife with, has died. He was a new young man, but he died up in Scotland. And so the Tenerife trip was off. And so um, he said, but I've got some good news at the end of his letter. And he said um, that there's a, a man called Captain Fitzroy who wants a companion to go on this surveying trip to South America. And we think that you'd be quite good at it. Now, unbeknownst to Charles, he'd already said to Fitzroy, yes, he's going to go. But Charles ran to his father and he said, can I go? It's, it's, a, it's a trip of a lifetime. And so his father said, absolutely not. You're going to be a clergyman. You're not allowed to do that because clergymen don't do that sort of thing. And uh, the boat must be unworthy because two people have already refused to go on it and it will sink in the middle of the Atlantic. And it went on and on and on. There were eight reasons. So anyway... Charles wrote and said, I can't go to Henslow. And he went off to his uncle's house in Staffordshire, Josiah Wedgwood, and he said to him about this trip. And the uh, Josiah and Emma uh, thought about it, and they sort of thought, well, there's potential in this. It, it is really up Charles's street. So he... Um, he wrote back to Robert and he counteracted every one of those eight reasons why Charles should go on this journey. So Robert thought about it and he thought about it again and then he wrote back to Josiah and said, yes, he can go and I'll pay for everything while he's on that trip. Little did he know it would last five years and not the two. So um, it was very good that he was going. So the next thing was for him to meet Captain Fitzroy. He'd never heard of this man and he thought, well, he's a captain, how bad can it be? And so he went down to London and met with him. Now, um, Captain Fitzroy was a bit of a phrenologist. And he looked at Darwin's nose and he said, no way is that man coming on, on a boat with me. So um, he had to persuade him. Now, one thing I've learned about Charles in all the reading that I've done, he's a charmer. He's the most charming man you could ever hope to meet. Everybody loves him, even on the Beagle. The crew loved him and the officers loved him. And that's quite something. So he charmed Captain Fitzroy. And they had a lot in common once they sat down. Captain Fitzroy, Robert, was um, very knowledgeable about natural sciences, geology, and botany. And um, so they got on so well, he, he said, yes, you can come on the trip with me, and you can share my cabin. So that was pretty good. The trip had been paid for by the government, and uh, they were paying for the refit on the Beagle. Now, the Beagle had already been on one trip, and he had been the second or the first officer on this trip, the first time to South America, so he knew all the faults in the ship. And I think that he put in the refurbishments the way he did to make life easier. 
uh, he put in skylights in his cabin and the poop deck cabin. Uh, he put in a library so that there was books to read. He um, put in a higher deck so the whole of the deck had gone up so the cabins had more room in them. So everything was done um, and everything was passed by the, by the Admiralty. But he asked for one thing and he didn't get that and I'll talk about that later. Here's the ship. Now you can see here, this was the poop deck cabin and this one here is his cabin. And um, he didn't like to mix with the crew. So basically he was stuck in that side of the ship all the time. Um, he felt it, um, it wasn't good for his authority. Uh, now, Charles just stayed in that site. He was seasick a lot of the time on this ship. He, um, every time he got on board, he was seasick. And he said he was either ill, being ill, or he was doing his specimens on board. So mostly in this cabin up here. The ship was only 90 foot long, and there were a lot of sailors on this ship and uh, military, so you can imagine there's not much room for everybody to move about. There was also, well that's when they set sail from England. Um, they go on the 10th of December. They leave uh, for across the Atlantic to go to Tenerife on the 10th of December. But in the Atlantic, they hit gales, really bad weather, he's already being seasick, and they don't actually get there. They have to turn around and come back to Plymouth. And by this time, he's sick of Plymouth, and he writes so in his diary. But by the 27th of February, fair weather happens, and off they go. So they go, um, and they get to Tenerife, and he's really excited. He's read this Humboldt book and he wants to see all the things that Humboldt told him about. But he can't get off the ship because they say that the ship might bring cholera to Tenerife. And so he can only look at it from the side of the ship and they actually have to go on with their journey. They go on to Cape Verde Islands, which is in the middle of the Atlantic, and he's not looking forward to it. You can see there how the journey goes. This is coming back and this is going to, so it's the, the Canary Isles line. He has to cross the equator. He was a newbie, they call the people who cross the equator for the first time newbies. So he has to be part of the ceremony, which he hates. And if you read his diaries, he really isn't very complimentary about what happens at that time. Uh, they strip them off, they tar and feather them, they dunk them in barrels of water, and he escapes. He said, never again. Not very happy at all. Oops. So he arrives at Salvador. This is the first time he's arrived at uh, South America. 
and he's very excited. And he walks through the rainforest on his own. I mean, he's amazingly brave when you think about it. And he's so excited by what he sees. There's nothing like this in England. He sees exotic butterflies flying around. And he said, your eye goes from the butterfly to exotic plants. And then there's animals up in the canopy. He really loves this um, area. He sees 12-foot anthills, which he'd never seen before. He collects 64 different kinds of beetles while he's there, which is his love. He loves beetles. And so he really loved it. He actually said, it feels like being in the presence of God. And for an atheist, that's a pretty amazing thing to say. So this is, just goes through what the beagle had. Um, it was 22 chronometers and a lightning conductor and a mercury-free barometer. Now, why would you want 22 on a ship of this size? Well, it was because they were doing surveying, and surveying meant they had to recheck and recheck their instruments to make sure everything was correct. He was doing a map of the whole of South America, and so it was very important to get this right. And, of course, Fitzroy was an absolute meticulous person, just the right person for the job. And this is where the little story about the rest of the refit on the Beagle comes in, because he said, well, I've got these 22 chronometers, um, and they, the iron on the um, cannons interfere with the chronometers. So he said, take them off and bring brass ones. Of course, this was too much for the Admiralty. They weren't going to pay for 10 brass cannons. So they said, oh, no way, that's it. So he was very disappointed in this. So by the time he got to South America, he bought his own 10. Well, actually, he changed it for six cannons and left the iron ones in South America so that the, he could record correctly. Sorry, we've had that one before. So now he goes down to Rio de Janeiro, and here he sees things he doesn't like. First of all, I have to tell you about the Wedgwood and Darwood family. They were very much against slavery. Josiah Wedgwood had made this plaque, and it had sold all over the country. Women had brooches and jewellery made of it, and uh, they wore it if they were opposed to slavery. And he raised a lot of funds for the abolitionists. So he was well known as somebody who wasn't happy with slavery. Robert stated he wasn't happy with slavery also, so his father and his mother were against it. So when he lands at the harbour, he sees children being sold at an auction, Negro little children. And then he sees men being sold in a different area. And he sees females. And he, he, he understands that's the way the country runs, but he doesn't like it. 
he rents a house in Rio with an artist called Augustus Earl. And this is his paintings, actually. And uh, Augustus Earl was a very good artist. And he'd been employed by the Beagle, by Captain Fitzroy, to um, paint what he, he saw on the way through. But unfortunately, by this time, his arthritis was so bad that he couldn't go down to um, Terra del Fuego because it's so cold and damp down there. So he left the boat at this stage. Now, um, Charles was also a friend of this gentleman here, John Edmonston, and he had been the person that taught Charles taxidermy in Edinburgh. Now, um, he charged for this, but he became friends with him, and he talked about all the birds he could see in South America, because that's where um, he had come from. He was a slave in South America. His uh, plantation owner grew to like him, brought him back to Scotland, and set him free. And so he'd set himself up as a taxidermist, and was doing well. He was the one that people went to. So he'd already had a relationship with a Negro who had been a slave in this area. So there again, he wasn't very happy about what he saw. Then he leaves Rio and he goes, sorry, he goes on to Punta Alta. Now, I don't know if you know this story, but he sees a skull in, embedded in a rock, and he spends three hours carving this out of the rock, and he sends it back to um, Henslow, and they find out it's an extinct animal that would have been 13 foot high and um, would, have won would have weighed a considerable amount. And it's still in the Natural History Museum, and you can see it. And they're trying to do a digitized um, program at the moment that will take a, a 3D view of it. But you can see it there. Of course, back home, this was news, and Henslow spread the news. So he was becoming famous, but he didn't know anything about it. Well, here we are. He's gone down to Montevideo in Uruguay. And uh, just while we're watching this picture, how did he get his specimens back? How did he get his letters back, his packages, his notebooks? Well, you see all the boats in the background, the ships. Sorry, I'm being corrected. <laughs> uh, the ships in the background. Um, they used to come into Montevideo Harbour or any harbour along that coastline and they'd be going back with goods. They'd probably bring in slaves and go back with goods from South America. So he'd seek out a captain who was going back to England and he'd give them his specimens, which he packed up, his letters and his notebooks for Henslow. Henslow collected all his specimens while he was on this journey and also was uh, able to look at his notebooks. He corrected things at times. He said with one of the specimens that he'd sent, um, 
Well, it's not really well packed because you've bent the stalk and it's not good to bend the stalks on samples of plants. So um, he was learning as he went along. Uh, but that was Montevideo. He went out into the hinterland and saw the vegetation there. He travels to Par Patagonia and he loves the gauchos. The gauchos try and teach him how to catch cattle with their balls that they use and he catches nothing but his ankles so they laugh at, at that. Uh, but he, he thought that they were wonderful people. He goes up the Santa Cruz River and it's very strong currents and the beagle uh, doesn't do well. It gets hold, I think it was. It, it certainly needed repair. And that's the famous print that you've probably seen of the beagle. And it's going to be repaired. Um, and then he... Oh, there's Mount uh, Fitzroy over there. That's a spectacular mountain. Then he goes down to the Falkland Islands, which he wasn't impressed with at all. He said it was very flat and uninteresting. But he stays there and he goes for a walk. And on that walk, he discovers all sorts of fascinating things uh, in the vegetation and also the rocks. So he was... Uh, much more friendly towards the Falkland Islands after he'd been than before. They go up and down. The way that the beagle worked, it was it, it kept on going up and down the coast uh, in order to recheck and recheck his survey. So you'll see that there's lines going up and down all the time. Uh, and that was because of the beagle rechecking. But uh, Charles used to stay in one place at one time. He actually only spent 18 months on the Beagle. He spent the rest of the time on shore. Then they go to Terra del Fuego. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but on the first journey, Fitzroy took three people back with him and he named them Jemmy, Button and Basket rather unfortunate names, but that's what he called them. And this is Jemmy up at the top, and this is Button down at the bottom, and that's Basket. No, Button is in the middle, and Basket's there. So um, he takes them back. He puts them around London. They even visit the Queen. The Queen gives Basket a hat to wear. So... <sighs> It's almost as if they were specimens, and then the public turned against them, and he decided it would be better if he took them back. So he arranged to take them back with a missionary in order to um, form a missionary where the natives were. But when Charles went first onto land, or saw them from the land, he said, I've seen nothing like this before because they were naked, absolutely naked. It was very cold there, so they must have had a great constitution. And they were painted with white stripes all down their body. They looked very ferocious and fierce. Uh, this is how the people looked here. I put a picture with them with furs <coughs> round because uh, 
The other pictures were a bit X-rated. <laughs> Sorry about this. Anyway, they bring back the um, civilized fugins and they leave them there with the missionary, with all the things that they bought to start up a missionary. And they go off doing their surveying. So they come back a couple of months later or so. And uh, basket and button had gone off with most of the goods that they'd left, stolen them and gone north. Jemmy had met a girl and got married, but he looked he'd gone right back to being a native again. So it was really sad in a way for the crew to see them in this way. So they offered Jemmy the chance to come back to England, but he said no, he was staying with his wife and making his life there. So that's him waving goodbye to the Beagle as it goes out of the uh, area where it had been harbored. And that was the last they ever saw of him. So now it's two and a half years into the journey and Charles finally sees the Pacific Ocean. And here was a lot of geological um, exciting things for him to view. He'd read Lyle's book and Lyle had talked about volcanoes and earthquakes, but he hadn't experienced it so far. The first thing he sees in January 1835 is a volcano go off, and he was very excited. And this was the volcano, actually. You can see the fault line that's going up here. Well, he goes to Valvida, and he's lying in the forest under trees, and suddenly the ground starts to swell, and it goes up and down, up and down, and he realizes he's experiencing an earthquake. So immediately he thinks, wow, is this how the natural earth acts in, in times of crisis? There must be something to do with how mountains are made and so forth, but it's only a spark in his head at that time. So uh, then he goes on to Concepcion, and you can see the devastation here, and there's the cathedral that was absolutely ruined during the earthquake. It was 8.5 on the Richter scale, which is very high, as you know. And they had a tsunami that was like the one that hit Japan. So it was strong. And he met an old lady in Concepcion who said that her village and many other villages had been absolutely wiped out. So a lot of deaths happened in that time. So now he goes up to Valparaiso and he goes on this journey to the Andes and he so loves the look of the Andes, it's so impressive. And he finds up in the Andes um, sea fossils, beds of them, and he thinks how on earth did they get there? I mean this is up in the mountains. And he starts to evolve the idea of uh, of the earthquake and how it could happen that mountains could be pushed up and um, 
This was an idea that was evolving in his mind at that time. So he leaves South America and off he goes to the Galapagos. Wow, he's excited here because there are animals and, and species here that he's never seen before or have never been written about before in his life. And so he uh, looks at them in detail. He meets a man who lives there and he talks about the tortoise. Now Galapagos means tortoise. So you can see how many there must have been on the island. And as you see from this front picture here down at the bottom, there's a flat-shelled tortoise and there's an arched-shell tortoise. And they both come from the Galapagos but from different islands. And the reason they're like that is because they've evolved differently. One eats grass and one eats from the trees. And so over many thousands of years, that's how they developed. And you see a marine iguana on the picture there. It's a fascinating creature. An iguana lives on the ground. It doesn't live in the sea. But this can swim underwater, stay underwater. Why? Because when it arrived in the Galapagos, it could only eat seaweed. That was all that was available. So the usual snout of, a, of an iguana is long, and this one went further and further back. So it could eat the seaweed, because it, it's close to a rock. And so that was fascinating for him. Of course, the finches, we all know about the finches, but uh, he collected them from all different islands, and they were all different. The beaks were long and pointed, some were short, um, some were bigger birds, some were smaller birds, and they were categorised by both him and Fitzroy. But it was Fitzroy's category that was the best done. He did the better job of, of the two of them. Not many people know that, but it's Darwin that's known for the finches. Now, why am I showing you the picture of a tortoise in Queen? So here we are. The inevitable moment where my camera dies. You knew it was coming. I'm, I did warn you. Um, and Bibbs is just about to talk about um, the tortoise. Um, and to be fair, it was literally about 30 seconds. I was very quick thinking by by me, actually. I do have to commend myself on how quickly I acted. So there, there, was, there was a few, probably about one or two minutes of, of the lecture, if that, uh, that was missed. Um, but we're going to talk about Darwin in, in Australia. So... Here we go. Uh, take it away, Bibbs, for a second time. And I'll catch you guys at the end. I will, I'll pop in and say goodbye. So Darwin's getting a bit fed up by now. He, uh, he's in Sydney and he loves the marsupials. Then, like nothing he'd seen before. They're completely different to anything else that he'd seen on his journey. And he made a lot of notes about it, but he was feeling very homesick. Um, he goes on to the Cocoa Islands. He stops at other islands on the way, but I'd be here for three weeks if I went into every stop that he made. But this is the uh, 
particular one that he felt really interested in because it had the coral reefs there. And of course, he wrote a book on the coral reefs. Uh, so he was very glad to see those. And then he went on to Mauritius. And we all know we want to go for a holiday in Mauritius. It's everything that we dream of. He didn't. He wanted to come home. He wasn't really interested in Mauritius. Um, he gets to the Cape of Good Hope and he meets uh, John Herschel. And he has a long discussion about him, about the different species in different lands. And he said, John Herschel says, it's a mystery of mysteries. So he really copped out. So he's looking forward to going home and suddenly Captain Fitzroy says, oh no, we've got to go and check some details back in South America. And he, he wasn't very happy, as you say. This zigzag manner of proceeding is very grievous. I loathe and abhor the sea and all ships who sail in it. He, he wasn't happy. <laughs> and um, I think, he, I think, I mean, this isn't any part of history at all, and I shouldn't even say it because I'm being recorded, but I think he went back for those guns and swapped them over again. Remember I told you that he bought six brass guns, but um, I'll, I'll be told off about that. <laughs> he gets to Falmouth on October the 2nd, and he's so delighted, he's really beyond himself with delight, that he gets on a coach straight away and gets back to Shrewsbury. Oh, the family go mad. They're absolutely so delighted to see him. The sisters had been writing letters almost every month to him. His father only wrote him three letters, um, but he got all the news from the sisters. And so many other people were writing to him. The Mostyn Owens in Oswestry were writing. The Wedgwoods were writing to him to keep him updated with news. So all these people were very happy to see him back. And uh, he also has a love interest. This is him writing to Fitzroy as he gets back the next day. I arrived here yesterday morning at breakfast and thank God found all my dear good sisters and father quite well. My father appears more cheerful and a little older than when I left. Well, not surprising, his father didn't want him to go. Now he's a big celebrity. <laughs> My sisters assure me I do not look the least different and I'm able to return the compliment. Indeed, all England appears changed, excepting the good old town of Shrewsbury and its inhabitants. So isn't that nice? We're still... Uh, thought of as the good old town of <coughs> So here we are with the love interest. He marries Emma it, up in London, actually, in uh, January 1839. I think her father had just died and she'd become a very wealthy lady. She was a very intelligent person. She had had uh, lessons, piano lessons from Chopin, no less, and played in front of Mrs. Fitzherbert. Um, so she was well known as being a good pianist, but she was also a very caring woman. She looked after uh, Charles when he came back, and he was so sick. He was really ill for the rest of his life, almost. Um, 
today I was reading an article about medical conditions in Charles, and they said all sorts of things. He picked up insect bites and, and various other things. And then they said they put it down to a dairy intolerance, which actually somebody who came in to look at the exhibition today had a dairy intolerance. And I explained what Darwin had gone through. And she said, yes, that's exactly the same. He gave up eating dairy products towards the end of his life and all the symptoms went. So I think it must have been something like that. But he was a very sick man. Well, what did he achieve? Well, he left, as I said, as a boy of 22 years old with an abundance of enthusiasm and came back at 26 with a lot of knowledge and he put that knowledge to good use the rest of his life. Um, he wasn't the first to propose um, evolution, but his was backed up by science. He went over and over and over his theories for all his life. The places named after Darwin, well, there's a tremendous amount all over the world. So he's very well respected all over the world. There's mountains and universities and lots of places. <laughs> There's 250 species named after him. The first one was Darwinii sloth or something, and it was that it was named after the great sloth, but. Uh, he got that as the first name, named one that was named after him. But the rest are interesting. There were philosophies named after him. And of course, the specimens. 1,500 specimens um, Professor Henslow had to deal with. So it was a tremendous amount, and he rallied all the professors to help him who were interested and knowledgeable about this field. And he also was like the marketing PR guy for Charles before he came back, because he'd given uh, talks and various made various notes and done lectures on everything that Charles was finding. So um, he wrote books. This is the books he wrote for the rest of his life. Books, papers, all sorts of things. So there we are. He died at age 73, having changed science with this journey of a lifetime. And it goes on. This is the Beagle Channel, and this is a tall ship. And this is actually my niece, who's 22 years old, who was in Terra del Fuego three weeks ago. So the youngsters still like to travel. We just do the acknowledgements and thank you for your support. I hope there's no questions, <laughs> but if you want to know anything, please ask. <laughs> He did start doing medicine. His father really wanted him to be a doctor, 
as Erasmus's brother was up at Edinburgh studying to be a doctor, he happened to see two um, unfortunate operations on a child and he ended up really, it, that turned him off medicine for life actually and um, the, there was no anaesthetic in those days so he said he heard the screams of that child for the rest of his life and so he came back, he did two years at uh, Edinburgh as did his brother Erasmus. Erasmus got pensioned off so he never uh, practiced as a doctor, he was always sickly and of course Charles went to be a clergyman because there's no blood in, <laughs> in that. Um, and he went on to Cambridge. What, what was his degree in? His degree was in theology. But he, he very rarely studied hard at it. He, he was a quick learner. So he got through that exam very well. Do we know what happened to the Beagle? The ship? Uh, I've been looking at that. Uh, the Beagle was recommissioned. Uh, it did a little work around this coast and then it ended up in Exeter and it was broken down by a gentleman and they built a house and they think that part of the oak of the house is from the Beagle. <coughs> if you were going to go to one of the places that Charles Darwin went to on this door, which well, that's a really hard question, because I love chili. It sounds so exciting and beautiful. But, having read about the Galapagos, you know, there's so many species there to see that are so unique to those islands. That would be one of the places I would like to see. But Shrewsbury's a pretty good place also. <laughs> Okay, then I'll say thank you very much for coming and hopefully we'll see you next year. <laughs>
the shrewsburybiscuitpodcast.co.uk. Um, and that's made for us by our friends at Web Orchard. All of our content is on there. It's playable. Um, and uh, you can go back and you can listen to, to the episodes. I'll make these these things so that um, there's something for everybody. I always call the, the, the Shrewsbury Biscuit the one show of shoot like it's like the one show but for shrewsbury you know so there's a little bit of something for everybody so have a peruse have a look and if you need a website uh web orchard will definitely sort you out um they uh they really are talented at what they do right i'm gonna let you go and i'll catch you next time thank you for listening peace out <laughs>